All right, today we are talking about obedience. So we are in, as we're in 1 Samuel, talking about God's kingdom and contrasting with men's kingdoms, there's a lot of character studies that we've been going through. We've sat in Hannah. We've sat in Samuel's character, Eli's character, Jonathan, Saul. In a couple weeks, we're going to get into David's character. But today we're finishing off a major section in regards to Saul's life. But in the last few Sundays, it's, it's, there's this, we're watching in these chapters, the, the focus is on Saul and his slide away from God. We're defined very clearly that God gave to Saul his Holy Spirit, that Saul became another kind of man, that he was given a different heart, this we can relate to all these, these New Testament promises that we have in Jesus Christ and that we depend upon those promises. But we're watching Saul make decisions based on his feelings and his loyalty to himself rather than his loyalty to God. We focused last week on the guides in our life and he is using external guides to guide his behavior rather than allowing God to guide his behavior. And today we're going to press into this whole idea of obedience. I want to make sure that we provide a good definition of what obedience is and give some qualifications to it before we get into the study because I've, I've had a few instances this week in the whole idea of obedience, specifically um, women obeying their husbands in marriage and how that is abused. So I want to make sure we very clearly define what biblical obedience is and not obe uh, 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 abusive obedience, manipulative obedience. You must obey me because I'm the pastor. You must obey me because I'm your father. You must obey me because I'm in whatever position that I hold and I'm using that authority to manipulate your behavior in accordance to my will. That is not the obedience that we are talking about. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the words that, uh, the, the roots, the, the ideas of the words that are translated in regards to obedience, they have to do with our senses. And the first sense is the sense of hearing. So when it comes to obedience is you're listening to in the context, God, who has this position of authority, he has a voice. And the idea of voice is going to come up repetitiously today. We're told in the foundation of God's creation in Genesis that his voice is what spoke creation into existence. God is never at any time separate from his voice, and he's not separate from his word. When we say, and the Word of God says, that this, this document, that it is alive, it's alive because the source of this information is the source of life, God. His voice is alive. His voice is active. His voice has power, the power to create, the power to recreate you and re-image you. And that's the kind of obedience that I want to have, listening to his words and allowing his words to have his power, his authority in my life to transform my mind and the way that I think into his mind, to transform my heart. I desperately need a new heart. I don't want Saul's heart. I don't want my old heart that was there prior to Jesus Christ. But I sit in Romans chapter 7 with Paul. We call them the doo-doo verses. Because Paul says over and over, there's this war that's in me. 
I find myself doing those things that I don't want to do, and I find myself not doing those things that I want to do. Is that this exasperation, oh, wretched man that I am. Anybody sit with Paul in your own wretchedness, in the sense of this exposure, like all I want to do is love and honor my creator and have a life that is filled with him, filled with his joy, with his plans, his purposes, his glory. I can't wait to see him face to face. I want his kingdom to come. I want everybody to love him. Like I want all the good things that he proclaims. But yet, I sit in my own daily life. Where do these emotions come from? Where does this anger come from? Where does this lust come from? Where does all of this other stuff that I don't want there, why is it still there? And there's this, there's this constant submission and transformation process as he leads us, as I choose to submit myself to this, this obedient relationship. And again, it's this idea, Lord, I'm listening. And then the other idea, it's not only listening, it's also seeing, being watchful, being observant of your own behavior, your own words, and those of others to keep and to hold. But the idea of obedience, it's, it's this. It's your hearing, your listening, your meditating, and it's, a, it's an action of response to that individual that you consider to have authority over you. And again, this can be parents, this can be spouse, this can be friend, employer, government officials, you name it. Obedience plays out in a variety of ways in our life. But again, as we get into this morning, I want to make sure that we understand that our salvation, our relationship with God, our, our freedom from sin, all these promises that we have for him are not wrapped up in our obedience. They are wrapped up in his grace. So even as we sit with Saul this morning, we sit in, we are going to watch him once again have this declaration that the kingdom is being torn away from him because of his disobedience. We can sit with Adam and Eve in the garden. All they did was disobeyed. They did something that God said don't do, and that's what's brought about sin. That's what's brought about death, the consequences that we live in. None of this has captured God by surprise. And in this area of obedience, the response of actions always revolve around you're responding to his love. You're responding to his grace. You're responding to his mercy. This is not you have to do this. This is I get to do this. I want to do this. I want to do what's right. I want to do what's just. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good pastor. I want to be a good friend and a good employee and a good citizen. I want to be good. I want to be righteous. I want to be just. And the only reason I know the right definitions of any of these things is because of the revelation that he's given to me of himself. And that's been sourced from his voice. So men... We on Saturday, this is, and I have some up here. We'll get these on Saturday too, but I wanted to print it out so that you'll have it in your hands. We took a couple years in the mid's breakfast to go through the commands of Christ. So when we talk about the commands of God and those things that we're to be obedient to, we're not just talking about Old Testament laws and rules. We have very specific commands from Jesus. 
and there's a list of 49 here. So I'd encourage you to grab this. If anybody's interested, I have a much deeper and more thorough Bible study that you can go through and really dig into these ideas. So this is going to be the subject matter this week is obedience. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. Chapter 14 is where we're picking up the narrative. We have a snapshot, a cultural snapshot here in regards to last week. We're looking at Saul. Um, we are watching again his, his poor leadership, these rash oaths that he gave, the consequences of those things, what God was doing through Jonathan. Now in verse 47, there's this, again, this, this cultural snapshot, which is actually good for Saul's life. It says, Saul established his sovereignty over Israel. Literally, he's capturing by force um, his, his kingship over Israel. And it's not just, it's not, the emphasis isn't over the people, it's over the enemies that are around them. It says that he fought against all his enemies on every side. And I continue to note, in, in Saul's life, it is, it's very me-focused rather than God and God's people and God's will. Again, there's this, these aren't the enemies of the Lord's people. There's an emphasis in Saul's life where, you know, it's all about him and his kingdom rather than the Lord's kingdom and all of his issues. So against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines, wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. So this is why they wanted a king. They wanted a king in regards to the, like the nations around them, take them out to war, bring them back from war. They wanted this kind of leadership and this structure as they're rejecting God as king. This is the king that has been established and he's doing what he ought to do. And just remember that imagery of Saul. He's head and shoulders taller than all the other men around him. He's strong, he's good looking, He's powerful. He is, he is a warrior. And he's doing what he is called to do in regards to being a deliverer of, uh, for the nation of Israel from all of their enemies around them. So this is, a, this is an aggressive man. But in that aggression, he's also insecure. And that plays out in all different ways in his life. Another snapshot, the strength of his household, the, Saul's of, uh, the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Yishui, and Malkishua. The names of his two daughters were these. The name of his firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger Michael. She'll come up again. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. So Abner is Saul's cousin. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Verse 52, now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Israel. And when Saul saw any strongly, strong man, literally any manly man, or any valiant man, the, the idea is a man of faculty, somebody who has knowledge and experience and understanding. So he's finding these men who are strong physically, these men who are wise. He sees any of that in all of his goings, says he took him for himself. Again, doing exactly what the king was promised to do to the people there in chapter 8. 
All right, verse 15. So that's cultural snapshots, snapshot of Saul's strength, what's going on. Now here comes another day. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed, and this is this idea of obedience, of of listening. Heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Oh boy, do we have a lot to define before we even move on from here. Again, going back up to this idea of heeding, this is listening, listening to the voice of the Lord. Again, his his audible voice, the words that he has spoken, the words that he speaks in your mind and in your heart, the command that we have is listen, turn in, turn off everything else on the outside and intentionally turn in to listen to the voice of God. His voice is not separate from his word. It is not separate from his mind and his heart. We are constantly told to turn in and to listen to his voice in a way where we're seeking understanding, we're seeking clarity, in a way that's going to transform my thinking into his thinking, my heart into his heart, so that my words, what's coming out of my heart, that my words end up being his words, that the actions, those things that I choose to do are what his plans and purposes are for my life. And we're going to get into whether or not we want to do this in our relationship with the Lord, because we all find ourselves kicking against his voice to different degrees. But now when it comes to Amalek and this definition of Amalek, hold your places here and turn to Exodus chapter 17. To know and understand what we can see as an extremely harsh judgment of God against Amalek, we want to get the history in our mind so that we can give definition We'll get into a nursing child. I just, I just met a, a new nursing child for the first time this morning. And I can tell you right now, anybody hurts that child in this room that I just met this morning, I would have a violent response to. Would you not? So God, how can you give this command? And we're going to answer that in just a minute. Verse 22 of chapter 15 of Exodus Remember the context for the people. They have just witnessed these 10 plagues of God against the nation of Egypt and against Egypt's gods and all of the drama and all of the trauma that that included. They have been forced out. They have been let go by Pharaoh. As they were let go, Pharaoh is now hunting them down with his army. The people are afraid. They have all their possessions. It's husbands and wives and kids and the mixed multitude of Egypt. 
There in, uh, in Exodus 14, you have Moses telling the people to stand still and see the salvation of God where he takes them through the Dead Sea on dry ground, this miracle that's performed. They are still being pursued and hunted even then, and God causes the, uh, the Red Sea to come on top of the armies of Egypt. Chapter 15 is the song this song of God's salvation that the culture is singing to you. All of this elation, this chapter is now closed in their life. And now they are turning to the wilderness under the leadership of God, under the leadership of Moses. And the first place that they're taken to is a source of water that they need for survival in the wilderness, and it's bitter. They take a sip and they spit it out because it's salty. And we're told specifically that God is testing them. How many of you have been saved in your relationship? You've been saved from your sins. You have the life of God, and now God is testing you. As we turn back to Samuel in just a minute, God is testing Saul's obedience. He tests us every single day. Some of the tests are big. Some of them are small. They are not for our destruction. They are for our salvation. They're for our benefit. They're bringing about his will, his purpose, his heart, his mind within us. This is why we are tested and put through these trials so that, again, we will constantly follow him and turn to him. It's in the midst of this scene. Where am I? I told you, I think I told you the wrong chapter. Uh, we need to be in Exodus 17. Exodus 17, verse 8. So this is, again, this is the scene. Uh, you have the manna from heaven, the bread of heaven, God's provision there. You have water coming out of the rock of Horeb and all this imagery that's gone on. And now we're told in chapter 17 of Exodus, verse 8, it says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Come, oh, sorry, come, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. So and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand, rod in his hand. Again, there's imagery here, but the, the emphasis is Amalek is coming against God. They are coming against God's throne with their hand in warfare against God. And the imagery that we're given is Moses' hand. Moses' hands are lifted up to the throne of heaven, not against God, but in submission to God. Again, this isn't an instruction that the Lord has given to him in this battle, but we're told that as, as his hands are held up, that Israel prevailed. But when his hand let down, Amalek prevailed. Moses' hands, they became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur, they supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. God's judgment here, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this. First, first time in the Bible, a command to write something down. Write this for a memorial in the book and recounts it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner, for he said, because the Lord is sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. 
This idea that the Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nisi is the word. A banner, uh, the best relation that we'd have today is a flag. So you look at the United States of America, it is a banner that we are all under as citizens of this nation, and it identifies that this is, this is where we rally together, this is where salvation comes from, this is where unification comes from, this is where strength comes from. So when we say that Yahweh, the God who created the heavens and the earth is our banner, he is the one who we gather underneath for salvation. He is the one who is protecting us. He is the one who is the divine warrior. Nobody is going to defeat the Lord of hosts. This is all of this imagery. He is the one who unites us together. So in this scene, as the nation of Israel is coming out, as they're entering into these other lands, you have this nation, the Amalekites, who are their descendants of Esau, nation of Edom, and they are coming against, turn to Deuteronomy 25, so they're coming against the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 25 gives us some more flavor of what they're doing. Deuteronomy 25, 17 says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear, those who were weak, those who were worn out, those who were straggling behind this who Amalek was picking off. When you were exhausted, you were tired, and you were weary. Here the enemy is coming in and picking off all the weak stragglers. He did not fear God. Again, the, the Egyptians feared God, all the plagues, everything that occurred. Amalek has that testimony. They have no fear of the true and living God. Therefore, they are coming against God's people, attacking the rear ranks, all the weak, all the weary, all the tired. Same behavior that the enemy does today. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around and the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. All right, back to 1 Samuel 15. So now we're sitting with God speaking to Samuel. Samuel coming to Saul saying, thus says the Lord. Remember Amalek? The Lord says now's the time. The time has been 500 years. So when we sit in this idea of how patient is God with sin, your own personal testimony, your own issues, your chains, your struggles, your darkness, the things that you fight against, the things that cause you shame and guilt. How patient has God been with you? Long-suffering, enduring with his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his compassion, God changes not. He has given the Amalekites 500 years to repent. We're going to see at the end of this chapter that we're told that the king was killing mothers and babies and, and, you know, he's going to war. Just all the issues that are going on with the Amalekites. Whatever's going on in their culture, God has now said enough is enough. 
And we see the same idea when in Joshua as, the, as God is bringing the children of Israel into the land of Canaan, that there's war, there's enemies in the land, there's influences that if these individuals, if these cultures remain, they will poison the children of Israel. I'm not going to tell you to raise your hands, but I, I, I guarantee 90% of our families homeschool their children in our congregation because they don't want the culture to influence their children. This, it's the exact same thing that's going on in this circumstance. The Amalekites, God's long-suffering mercy is now over, and he is proclaiming a very harsh judgment. The judgment that he has against the Amalekites is no different than the judgment of the whole earth when he sent a flood. In the flood, God executed men, women, children, nursing infants, animals in his, in his righteous, just judgment and the sin of humanity. And according to his will, he wiped out all but eight. So God's behavior is consistent. When Jesus comes back, again, we are told, there, when he brings his kingdom, there are those whose hands are against his kingdom. I will not have him rule over me. I don't want him to rule over me. If he is God, I want a different God, that kind of heart and that kind of attitude. So what God is commanding here, this, this is extremely harsh. I can't imagine the demand that obedience or the, 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 what was required in this moment. I can't, I brought up last week, I can't imagine the horror of hand-to-hand -hand combat. I can't imagine the, being the man who takes a sword and sticks it into a child's body to end its life. It's horrific to me. But the, the imagery, a, an idea that could help us understand what's going on would be to think about radiation. Again, as we had Russia coming into the Ukraine, as they go into Chernobyl, they were stirring up the dust of the radiation of that area, and people were dying as a result. Soldiers were dying as a result of it. You cannot go into Chernobyl without dying. It will have a consequence. It will kill you. That's this idea with the Amalekites. They've been given the space to repent. They are not repenting. So God is now giving the end judgment for them. And this is not something where God is sitting in joy. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He sent his son to die for our sins to remove us out of all of that. Even today, we don't sit in joy at the, at the death of any human being. And again, as we sit in a New Testament difference uh, in regards to like these kinds of behaviors, again, this is a specific time. This is a nation, a nation that he sent into a land that had enemies. These enemies, they had to be dealt with at different times according to God's will. Nowhere in the New Testament are we told to take up arms and go execute the sinners. But God is the same. The command that we have is to go to the sinners with the voice of God and proclaim to them the way out and to lay your life down for that presentation, for that proclamation of his good news and gospel. 
this utterly destroy, it is an idea that comes up eight times in the rest of the chapter. It literally means to put it under a ban, just like Chernobyl, it is under a ban. Um, the spoil is not yours. God is not doing this to enrich the nation of Israel. He's not doing this to, you know, to expand their borders or anything. God is using the nation of Israel in this test, in this moment, to be obedient to him because he can deal with the Amalekites in any way that he wants to. But ultimately, they're being... Uh, used as the tool of judgment, just like later on, God uses the Assyrians and the Babylonians as a tool of judgment to his own people in their disobedience. All of these ideas that they're all over the word of God, and ultimately it's this whole idea that disobedience is what brings about death. Sin brings about death. The wages, the earning, the recompense of sin is death, and God has done everything to free us from that death. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. We as his followers do not take arms and go and take this world by force. We take up his words. We take up his spirit, and we go live the example that he gave to us. This is, this is, again, this is really hard um, when you imagine the reality of it. True, necessary, good, just, righteous. When you and I stand before God, when we have the further information, you will not tell God that he judged wrongly in this moment or in any action that he has ever given. And again, this is where faith comes this is where trust comes. This is when you say, God, I don't understand this. I can't imagine this. Yet, it was a command that he was supposed to follow. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Talaim. Uh, this is south of Jerusalem, pretty much horizontal to the, the southern end of the Dead, City. Dead Sea is the area. 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the, a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, the Kenites, this is uh, the in-laws of Moses. This is the tribes of Jethro. Go, depart, get down from among the, the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So here's where their obedience was restricted and limited in what they wanted to do. And here's how we press into it in our own lives, in our own hearts. It is very easy to demonstrate obedience where you want to. It is very easy to cut off out of your life something that you do not value, right? It's really easy to take the trash out. 
You put it in the trash for a reason, and it's easy to toss it. Now, contrast with that something that's valuable. Is it easy to take a diamond ring that you value and toss it into the trash and go throw it and forget about it? Yes or no? No, because it has value, physical value, emotional value. There's, there's an attachment to it. So this is what they are doing ultimately as they are going to war. They're saying that I'm willing to obey God's command and his direction up until the point that's comfortable for me in my context in the moment. But that which I disagree in or that which I have a justification in or a different understanding or I value something that God is telling me to get rid of, I'm saying, no, I'm going to hold on to this. So for Saul and Agag, there, there's a position of kings. So this idea of preserving Agag as king, Agag becomes a trophy. Agag becomes, he's now, he can be in Saul's court as a trophy that all the other people can say, look at how powerful Saul is. Look how he humiliated this king, Agag. So there's some different reasons why Saul would preserve Agag. But there's many reasons why, as the nation is going out to war, why they want the spoil, why they want the plunder. The ugly sheep, no problem getting rid of that. But the pretty sheep, I'm going to keep that one. They're making excuses, being selective, and being incomplete in their obedience, which means that they're being disobedient. I have this great quote. This is old English language. So I'll read it a couple of times. It says, to spare the best of Amalek is surely equivalent to sparing some roots of evil, some plausible indulgence, some favorite sin. For us, Agag must stand for that evil propensity which exists in all of us for self-gratification. And to spare Agag is to be merciful to ourselves, to exonerate and palliate, which means to excuse, our failures, and to, and to condone our besetting sin. Lots of imagery there. I don't have enough time to read it again because I need to speed up because service should already be over. But I can't finish this chapter. What do you guys want to do? Um, Let's get down to, I don't know, let's read. We're not going to get very far. The word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me, and he has not performed my commandments. Again, this idea that he's turned back from following God, this is a contrast with the heart that God said is he's going to go find in David, a man after his own heart. This is that idea of obedience is that following relationship, that discipleship relationship, that learning relationship from the Lord. What God is saying is that Saul, he's, he's turned away. In this test that has been given, he's turned away from following the Lord. His heart is not for the Lord. His heart is for himself and for his own kingdom. He has not performed my commandments. 
And it says, and it grieved Samuel. Literally, Samuel is angry. He's hot, is what the word means. And again, this emotion is, is Samuel angry at God? Is Samuel angry at Saul? There's this, there's this anger and emotion, and you can have this with yourself. Disobedience doesn't need to be. And you can have this heat towards others. When you know that they know the Lord, you know that they know the word, and they're choosing to do their own thing, there's, there's this heat in prayer and conversation with God of why? Why do you let them keep doing this, Lord? Why don't you correct them? Why do you let this keep happening in my life? This is the passion and emotion that Samuel is having. So his anger is not at God. And again, this is a, the idea of God having regret. It's a human word to help us understand God's position in this relationship with Saul. When you sit with God today, he is interacting with 8 billion souls. So you sit in God's emotions in today, in, in who he is in his being. He's got emotions of joy, emotions of anger. There's emotions of judgment. There's emotions of regret. He, in, in, in all of what he is, he's all of this at the same time in full understanding and perfection and goodness and love and compassion. So the word that he gives to us that he regret setting up Saul as king is to help us to understand there's, there's, it doesn't, it ought, it didn't have to be that way. And those things that you struggle in in your life, it doesn't have to be that way. I look at myself in the mirror. Blake, those things that you fight again, it doesn't have to be this way. There's victory in Jesus Christ. There's freedom in Jesus Christ. There's joy in pursuing his commands. His, they're, they're good. I'm sitting in Ecclesiastes right now. I've, I mentioned this on Wednesday night. There is, there is a, what God has placed in my life to do, to keep me busy in, are those things that are his joy. I, my life needs to be consumed with that which brings him joy because that which brings him joy is going to bring about the satisfaction and the contentment and the joy and the laughter and the, uh, the privilege in life, regardless of what those circumstances look like that can be really hard and really frustrating and really challenging and really painful. There's, there's a joy having your life consumed with his will. So this idea that he greatly regretted establishing Saul as king, it's all lined up with Saul's behavior of turning away from following, not being obedient, and given repetitious opportunities to get it right. He's patient. He's gracious. He's compassionate. There's a grief that's associated with Samuel's crying out to the Lord all night, so when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went up to Carmel. So this isn't Mount Carmel that's in the north of Israel. This is coming up from where the war is. Saul went up to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. 
And this is, again, this, here's, here's just a picture of his heart of pride. This is a, a monument that you establish as, as, a, as a successful warrior. You're going to have this writing so that the community will know just what a great warrior you are. He sets up this monument for himself. He's gone around, passed by, and goes down to Gilgal. Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, for I have performed, I have fulfilled, I have accomplished the commandment of the Lord. Now, this is where his blind spot is. Saul has the boldness and the blind pride to say to Samuel, I did what God told me to do. Samuel's immediate response, well, we'll get there. Verse 15 says, Saul says, they, uh, no, verse 14. Sorry, I'm skipping over verses. Samuel does respond. What then is this bleeding? What's the voice of the sheep in my ears? What's the voice of the oxen? which I hear, and again, it's the same word where he was commanded, listen, take heed to the voice of the Lord. And as Samuel is confronting Saul, he's talking about the other voices that are hearing. You're telling me that you were fully obedient. What, is, what Saul is oblivious to, in reality and truth, Samuel can very clearly see, and he's calling Saul out, as he should. Then what are these other voices I hear? of these animals. Saul responds there in verse 15, they, they, not me, they, again, pointing the finger elsewhere, brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. It's the people's fault, Samuel. They wanted to spare all the good stuff so we could come back and have, have a great sacrifice to God. And again, God put all of this stuff under a ban. There is no, there is, God is not, again, he doesn't take pleasure in the judgment that he's just executed upon the Amalekites. This isn't to be a celebration. This isn't to be a gather the spoil or use the spoil as a sacrifice to God. This, is to, this was placed under a ban by God. You shall not take it. Samuel's response in verse 18, Saul, be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And at the instruction of being quiet, I think it's a good stopping point for me to be quiet. In two weeks, we'll have a continuation. Just a reminder, next week, we have a guest speaker from Calvary Chapel in Eldoret, Kenya, which is in the neighboring community from where we ministers. So Josh will be here next weekend. But as we wrap up this morning, and just, and again, this will give us a few weeks to really just sit in the idea as a congregation in, in this idea of obedience and what it is and what it's not. Now, I want to make sure that as, as we leave this morning, as we step into obeying Jesus' command to as often as we gather together, that we are to take the bread, that we are to take the cup to remember his body and his blood, that obedience, it's, there's a freedom that is to be associated with it. There is sometimes, as a child, you just need to be told what to do, and you just need to do it because you're told to do it, 
even if you're griping, even if you're complaining, even if you don't want to do it, there is that position in our relationship with God where that expression and emotion comes out. But that's not God's heart. That, that perfect position of obedience is wanting to. I want to be in this place. I want to gather with you and worship our creator. I want to participate in your life and share in your life as you image God to me and I image God to you because it's a good thing. I want to study his voice, his words together with you. I want to serve with you. I want to, I want to sacrifice our lives together for his plans, for his purposes, for his will. I want to be transformed and I want you to be transformed into the image of Christ. And I can tell you, it only comes about through obeying what he has commanded us to do. And his commands, they're not to be a burdensome. His ultimate command is believe on Jesus Christ in whom he sent. What does it mean to believe on Jesus? If you're, if you're a young believer, if you're not there yet, you have a list of questions. What does this mean and how does this work out? If you're a more mature believer, you've had a lot of questions answered, but you still have your bucket list of things that you just don't get. But belief comes back to this, Lord, I trust you. Even though I don't fully know you, there's coming a day when I will know you just as you know me. That's a promise that I hold on to. That that day that I see him face to face, I will know him just as he knows me. What an incredible promise. And I yearn for that. But as we submit ourselves into what he says to do and not to do, it's to be this Lord, create in me this heart that you promised to give to me that not only wants to do these things, but has the power to fulfill your will in my life today. If your will, God, is for me not to sin, and I know that that's his will for my life and for your life, his will is for you not to sin. Therefore, he gives us the power to be free from it and to not do it and turn away in the way of escape. And again, this isn't to be a heavy mind trip or manipulation from God. And if you don't do this, you're going to end up in hell forever and ever. God gives us the description of the eternal hell to show us what he has snatched us out from in his love, in his grace, in his mercy, in his timing, in his compassion. He tells us, do not have compassion for sin. That's sin that you have in your life. In the New Testament, Jesus tells us to be radical with sin. Your right eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. Your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. That's the imagery that we're being given in this section. There is a war that is transpiring in life, and the enemy is coming at you at your weak points. You were studied, you were watched, you were observed, and he is waiting for an opportunity every single day to step into your life with a temptation of sin, to depart from God, to stop following him, to do what you want to do, to make your excuses. We'll get into these definitions next week of rebellion and stubbornness that we all find ourselves in. 
Jesus gives us this freedom. You don't have to listen to that voice. Don't entertain the voice. Entertain my voice. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. I desire to come in. Be hospitable to me, God says. Let me come in and dine with you. Let me come in and sit at the table of your heart and your circumstances. Let's have a conversation. I promise to give to you the freedom that you need to live a life of victory, to live a life of love, of grace, of mercy, of obedience. All the promises are there. The power is there. All we have to do, believe, trust, and simply obey, trusting that he'll give you the power to obey that life in the spirit rather than the life of the flesh that's contrasted in Romans 8. So Father, here we are. Here's our minds. Here's our hearts. God, I yearn to be obedient. So according to your power, the power of your spirit that resurrected your son from the grave, the power of your spirit that dwells within us. Let us walk out in that power day in and day out in submission to you out of love and joy, knowing, Lord, that you will lead us down the path of victory. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.